Brian always gives me the easy ones. And then calls me his dear friend. <clears throat> I feel really good that we're going to solve this today. We're going to put this behind us. We, uh, we're hitting this series and we're hitting some potentially divisive issues. Um, I'll, I'll warn you, as, I, as I've talked with Brian and, and talked with Alex, we're, we're all likely to hear something that rubs us wrong. Um, last week, uh, Brian gave us 1 Peter 3.16, which says that we need to, uh, we need to uh, talk about our faith, talk about our hope, uh, talk about God uh, with, with respect and gentleness. And gentleness uh, isn't weakness. Gentleness is strength under control, right? Gentleness is strength uh, bridled. And so that's, uh, that's what we want to make sure that that we all do as we approach these subjects. Um, I talked this week with my friend Sid Smith III. Uh, he's a pastor at a mixed-race church in Oakland, uh, and he warned me that when we, when we bring up the, the topic of racism, some people think that this is confined to angry guys in pointy white hats, and some people think uh, it's offensive even to bring the topic up. I think racism is rooted in sin, and so my experience of my own sin is that not talking about it doesn't generally make it any better. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't solve it. So we have to talk about it, um, and we probably all have really different starting points uh, about, uh, about what it is or what it isn't, um, and, and rather than saying, this is racist, that's racist, that guy's racist, that guy's not racist, I don't want to do any of that. I want to dig under the foundation a little bit, and I want to get at the sin that drives this thing. And I want to get at God's heart, and I want to get at, at how God loves and how God does justice and how He calls us to do the same. And that then can be our starting point. I'm going to tell a few stories today. We're going to look at the story of, of Peter. We're going to look at uh, a little slice of my own story um, and see if, see if we can land this thing. And, and I'm going to try to move quickly. We have a lot of scripture to get through, um, and I've only got two hours. <laughs> Hour 55, nervous laughter. All right. <laughs> I recognize that as we talk about this, there are some words that I really, I can't use. Um, they're charged words with connotations that sort of end our productive discussion. So let's take a step back from that. Uh, first, I consider it really a, a profound privilege to be able to speak today. And if you hear that I'm calling you a racist, I realize you're likely to put up walls Try to come up with something to say that can trump whatever I might have said. <laughs> Let me assure you, if anything I say today sounds politically motivated, you would not be correct. We have to acknowledge that there are emotional borders that you aren't open to me crossing. and will cause us to argue rather than hearing what is documented in the scriptures, which remind us that we are aliens in this world fighting the fight and running the race for Jesus Christ. I hope we're all inoculated now. <laughs> I do want to set just a few ground rules. When we talk about uh, issues related to race and culture, uh, a pastor that I, that I listened to this week gave the caution that we all hear things that aren't said, right? So I, I all the way through this series, recognize that each of these topics leave us someplace where we hear things that maybe weren't said. Uh, so before we make, you know, 16 assumptions and 43 if-thens uh, and get really mad at each other, uh, let's just really, really focus on what the text brings us today and what is actually said first. And second, let's afford us, you know, a spoonful of grace. Um, if you know me, uh, you know I'm prone to saying stupid things. Just ask my family. 
Uh, speaking of which, as a side note, um, was really hit today by. Uh, hold on. Yeah, I was a worship. I was a worship pastor for decades, and today I got to be led in worship by my kids. What we hand down to them matters. All right, second ground rule. I don't want to talk about politics. Uh, it's really hard to talk about these topics without assuming we're talking about something in the political sphere, right? And, and we don't, I, I don't want, to, I don't want to, to speak directly to politics. Uh, I do want to speak directly to your heart, to my heart, to where the scripture leads our hearts in the matter of race. I do think that question has political implications, but I don't want to have a political argument. We can solve those problems on Facebook tomorrow, I'm sure. <laughs> Tweet others how you want to be tweeted. No. Finally, uh, as we approach these texts, um, I'm, not I'm, not, I'm not claiming a great, uh, a great originality. I am leaning on theologians and pastors uh, and, and researchers um, who are much wiser than me uh, as, we, as we dig into these. So we have three texts that we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to look at John 4, Acts 10, and Galatians 3 today, which all give us a, a, little, a little entry point, a little slice of, of the life of Peter. And, and for this, I dug out the big Bible. Um, so watch it. It's feeling heavy today. Uh, how many of you actually brought, brought a real Bible? Did we bring a real Bible? Yeah? We're not, we're not phone surfing? I have to be honest with you. Sorry, Brian, I'm going to totally confess my sin. Sometimes with my phone Bible, like eBay is right there, boom, right? Like, you know, my brain wanders a little bit and I can Google it and chase it. Um, it's just, it just feeds my ADD, feeds my distraction. Uh, so uh, Brian has asked us last week, bring your Bible. Please find your Bible if you don't know where it is. Bring your Bible through this series. Um, so that we have something really sort of tangible and, and not so distracting, hopefully, as we, as we dig through. Um, okay, so Peter. Uh, Peter gets referenced by a number of names. Uh, so we call him Simon, was kind of his original name, and then uh, Jesus called him Peter, and he gets referred to as, as Cephas, uh, all of which mean the rock. As a side note, yesterday, um, Eliana and Alicia are buying groceries, and this guy is walking down the aisle that looks like this, right? He's got this same physique that The Rock and I have. And, <laughs> and, uh, and Eliana says to Alicia, who do you think would win in the fight, him or me? <laughs> Eliana's 10, and then a stiff wind would blow away. Um, yeah. Also, another side note, if you Google my name, you find a picture of The Rock. And the Mad Hatter, but the rock. That's cool. Um, Peter. Peter is a, is a complicated fellow. Um, and I want to I come back to uh, early in the book of John as Jesus is traveling with the disciples, including Peter, and has this encounter. So if you look at John, John 4... Uh, let me read part of this uh, for us. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So that's, you know, sort of a side note. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, if you want to go from Judea to Galilee, you have to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and I'm going to butcher all the pronunciations of these. Um, and it's near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, which is noonish. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, 
the woman says. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everybody who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replies. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that in place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman says, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So uh, this, is a, this is a funny exchange uh, that honestly, every time I come back to it, I, I, I find different things sort of, sort of come out to me. Um, first of all, the, uh, the spot that he comes to, Jacob's well, uh, the Samaritans, they had been, these are the descendants of, of Jews who had been taken into captivity, intermarried with the Assyrians, and now they live in this area. And the Jews see the, the Samaritans as uh, the lowest of the low, the betrayers of birthright. But Jacob, they both look to Jacob. Jacob is cool to both of these people. Jacob is the founder. Jacob is, is the forefather that they both look back towards. So to be at Jacob's well is, is sort of like neutral ground, right? This is, this is a place where, where we can come together and we can agree on something. Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Until this week, I was always kind of annoyed with that. Like, pump your water, Jesus. Right? Like, you could snap your fingers and make that thing pump all by itself. And, and honestly, from my upbringing, for me to sit there and say, woman, get me something to drink. Like, my gosh. My dad would have taken me out behind the woodshed. Like, get up and pump the water, right? But when he says, will you give me a drink? Imagine a situation more like this. Can I have a drink from your drinking fountain? See, she's going to come and she's going to draw this water and, and have it in a jar. And Jesus is saying, listen, I realize that our people are far apart, but I will drink from a jar that has touched your Samaritan lips. Even more than that, I will drink from a jar that has touched your Samaritan female lips. Like there were just, there were so many borders between these people that for Jesus to, to take that step looked much more like someone walking into this picture and saying, would you be willing to share your drinking fountain with me? See, he comes into this situation and, and he recognizes her humanity first. The woman is taken aback by this. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answers, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him for a living water. Now they, they go into this kind of cryptic exchange, right? 
And at this point, it reads like Yoda speak, and it seems a little bit confusing. But he's hinting at there's something bigger going on here than you see. Whenever Jesus takes a drink in the scriptures, there's something bigger going on than we see. I got up this morning and I had coffee and I had a glass of water and, you know, I didn't tell anybody about that because it wasn't really of note, although I just told you. We all, we all get a drink every day, right? That's what we do. It's how we sustain life. But I found five times in the Gospels where Jesus takes a drink or specifically doesn't take a drink. There's this case where by him taking a drink, for him asking a drink, he is, he, is, uh, he is acknowledging this woman as a human being. There's something deeper going on here with this relationship. We see him, uh, we see him taking a drink at the Passover meal before he's crucified. We see him turning down a drink of wine mixed with myrrh while he's hanging on the cross because it was a narcotic that would dull the pain that women were allowed to give to people being executed. We see him accept a drink of sour wine, which was uh, sort of a common, very low alcohol drink that soldiers and laborers carried with them that uh, was more thirst quenching than water so that it would prolong his suffering. So as a side note, know that when when Jesus is going to take a drink or Jesus refuses a drink, something is happening, and we have to dig a little bit deeper. Okay, so then he says, uh, go and call your husband. She says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right, you've had five husbands, and now you're with this other dude. I always read this before, uh, honestly, before this week as, as Jesus calling out her sin kind of how I've heard it taught. Um, But this week, I don't think that's what's happening there. A woman had no power in this time. No power. She married who she was told to marry. And if a woman had been married five times, this woman had been discarded, unloved, trafficked, See, I think Jesus is acknowledging her pain and oppression. I'm not suggesting the woman is without sin. But I, 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 I consistently see Jesus when he approaches the powerless. He starts by acknowledging them and forming a relationship with them. If I met you for the first time and called out your sin, our relationship is probably over at that point, Right? If I was like, hey, Josh, I know we just met, but there's this thing, right? Like, our, our conversation's probably over at that point. But that Jesus would approach this, this woman who is powerless, who has been sent alone outside of city walls to go retrieve water. I think he's acknowledging her pain. He's acknowledging her oppression. Because what happens then is, first of all, she says, you must be a prophet. Okay. You know, he just told you your life story. Um, Which spot that one? And then she starts asking questions because she probably didn't have any religious training, right? So she's like, listen, I hear that Samaritans worship like this and you Jews worship like this. What's this all about? I've heard something about a Christ. And he points her towards a more hopeful future. And he identifies himself as the Messiah, this, this, this person the woman's been, uh, knows, knows she's supposed to be waiting for. And then in verse 27, the disciples come back. And they're surprised to find him talking with a woman. They're not surprised just to find him talking with a Samaritan woman, but they're surprised to find him talking to a woman, which gives us, again, a little glimpse of sort of what the values of that culture looked like then. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? 
So I read that as they were speechless, they were dumbfounded, this was not okay. This ran contrary to everything they had been taught their entire lives. And so they just stood there, including Peter. Woman goes back to the town. She tells the people in the town. The people come streaming out of the town up towards this well and up towards Jesus. And the disciples in verse 31 are like, "Um, Jesus, I think you should eat something. They wind up sharing Jesus with these people, sharing salvation with these people. And a whole bunch of them become followers of Jesus, and they want him to stay. And he stays for two days. He would have stayed in their homes. What do you suppose this woman... What do you suppose how she was seen as she left the village that day and was headed up to the, to the well? Do you think she was probably well-respected? How do you think she was seen when she came back from the well? The woman that brought them Jesus. For all of the people in this village that encountered Jesus that day and were saved and became followers of Jesus, every time they saw that woman now, who do they see? So in that, Jesus has, has not made her wealthy, but he has, he has in some ways elevated her from her, her oppressed situation. Now Peter watches all of this happen, right? Let's flip over to Acts 10. I've only got an hour and a half left. Nervous laughter. Now, Peter has spent a few years with Jesus, and he has uh, eaten with him, and he has traveled with him, He's probably bathed with him, because they would have just done that in the lakes and rivers as they went along. These guys were close. They knew each other, these disciples and Jesus. He's seen him crucified. He's seen him raised. He's denied him. He's been renamed. He's been told that he is the man on which God is going to build his church. And now we find him uh, leading his church. And I'm not going to read every word of this because this gets really, really uh, dragged out, quite honestly. It's not that every word isn't important, uh, but for the sake of time, I, I, can't, I can't pull everything out of this. But broad brushstrokes. Town of Caesarea is a guy named Cornelius, and he is a Roman centurion. He is a powerful dude, a Gentile, but he is a Christ follower. And an angel appears to him and says, send for Peter. And so he sends for Peter. So these three guys are sent to to go to the town of Joppa and find Peter and bring him back. And Peter is up on the roof praying because that's the holiest place to pray, closest to God. And, uh, and Peter gets a vision where the sheet is lowered down with all of these, all of these forbidden foods, and he's told, he's told to kill and eat. And he says, these things are impure and unclean, I would never eat them. And God says, don't call unclean or impure what I call clean. This happens three times, because with Peter, it takes three times, over and over. And then the guys show up and say, listen, we were sent for you. And Peter hears the Spirit of God to say, go with these guys. So he goes, and they approach the house of Cornelius. Now, at this point, uh, Peter approaches the house, and Peter is, I mean, honestly, Peter's like the super Jew, right? Right? Like, this guy, he knows 
we got, we got the law, we got the tradition, we got the Messiah, like we got it. And I'm not supposed to enter the house of a Gentile. But he goes, so imagine his discomfort as he, as he enters this house, and there's a whole bunch of people in there, and it's a big party going on, right? Uh, if, you've ever, uh, if you've ever been to the McGoverns when they're having a big party, uh, John and Darlene always, well, there's food, right? Yeah, Gentile food is what Peter sees when he walks in the door. Pastor uh, Tony Evans describes this scene uh, as, you know, there's bacon, and there's ham, and there's chitlins, and there's some pig's feet, and there's a guy laying on the couch sucking on a neck bone, right? And Peter walks in the door. He is not comfortable. And so he sticks his foot in his mouth. And he says, you are all well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. Like, really? <laughs> That's what you're going to say. Man. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. The implication of this is that three days ago, I think you're un impure and unclean. Again, you know, this is like, really? This is what you're going to say, Peter? And so when I was sent for, I came without raising objection. Like, I read this thing, and it just feels like haughty and arrogant, condescending. And Cornelius says, God told me to send for you. So here we are. Speak. And we'll listen. And we'll listen to everything that the, that, that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So Peter begins to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message. God sent, the people of Is uh, God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in, in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Now, he's, he's speaking true things, but he's also really, really emphasizing how, like, you know how we got all this, right? We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, while Peter is saying all of this, and like really getting into his, uh, his lesson here, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. It's almost like God was just sort of interrupting Peter, right? Like, as Peter is going and going, God says, ah, all right, Peter, watch, watch this. So in the middle of his sermon, in the middle of his message, these people believe, or these people receive the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit came on them, all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and that they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. Peter keeps getting asked to stay in uncomfortable places. So, uh, so Peter actually steps out here and says, okay, look, the Holy Spirit has come on these people. We cannot keep them from being baptized, which is, a, which is a turn for him, for the Jews. Now let's flip over, Galatians 3. This is Paul writing, and Paul encounters 
Peter. Galatians 2, I'm going to start at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, their Jewish friend, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, the Jews. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So we see that, that, that Peter has seen these things happen, and he's gone, and he's kind of getting it figured out, and then he comes back, and then the other Jews see him, and he kind of relapses, right? He takes a step back. And he takes his friends with him, even Barnabas, it says. Now, Barnabas, Barnabas was like, he was the pillar of integrity, right? Like, this was the guy that everybody looked to. He was, he was, a, he was a man of, of faith, extreme integrity, of wisdom. Like, everybody looked to Barnabas, and even Barnabas was, astray, was led astray. Barnabas was from Cyprus. He grew up in this tiny little Jewish community. He grew up with Gentiles. He grew up playing ball with Gentiles. He, he was, as, as much as any of them, he would have been perfectly comfortable sitting and sharing a meal with these Gentiles. But even Barnabas is led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all. Okay, so let's say, you know, I'm going to pick on Josh again. Like, Josh, how you doing, elder in the church? Yeah, stand up, Josh, so everybody can see you. You racist jerk, right? That's, this is what happened. It was on the list, I know, right? I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? See, he rebukes Peter. It's like, Peter, you, you had it. You were almost there. You were almost there. And now here we are again. See, the story of Peter here is indicative of the reality that bias is chronic. It's a chronic condition. In this world, there is no cure, but there are treatments, which when daily applied to a humble and contrite heart can minimize its effects. It's a daily dose of scripture and real relationships with people not like me. It's listening to stories of my neighbors whose experience is nothing like mine and choosing not to dismiss or minimize someone whose face is different than mine, but is created in the image of God. See, Peter, like me, like you, Josh, is racked with sin. We're damaged to the cellular level. Your brain is simultaneously taking in 11 million bits of information, and it can process 42 of those. So it makes algorithms, shortcuts, so that it can quickly determine who is safe and who is not safe. These algorithms are reflective of your personal interactions with people, the movies you watched, the jokes you hear, the books you read, the music you listen to, the news you watch. They are not reflective of what you objectively believe to be true. And then we encounter a person that looks different from us, and our amygdala, that little, little tiny part of your brain that triggers the fight or flight response is activated. And you can't erase any of that. There is no cure. But there is a treatment. I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska in the 1970s and 80s, which is actually surprisingly diverse. We had two military bases, which uh, tend to uh, skew the, uh, the numerical representation of minority groups in a population. In my neighborhood, we had, uh, we had the, the Filipino family, the Japanese family, across the street were the Alaska natives. Uh, two doors down was my buddy Chris Vaughn, his 
his dad was black, his mom was Filipino. Then down this, uh, two doors down from him, uh, Kenyatta and Kinte and their family. Uh, and then just around the corner, Hakim and his family. These were, my, these were my football buddies, right? This is who I grew up with. Really, really diverse neighborhood. And what we had in common is that we were really, really cold. Red and yellow, black and white, 50 below ain't right. We were cold. We identified each other based on the, the hat face mask thing that we had to wear and the coat that you wore because you couldn't see anybody's face playing football at 40 below. And yet, my church was all white. And it never once occurred to me to invite any of those kids to church. Also in my sphere, I would hear um, adults and friends of my older brother use racial slurs and tell racial jokes. I would watch TV shows that reinforce stereotypes. All these things affect the algorithm. I'm thus sick with a chronic illness that I cannot overcome with reason. There's no cure, but there is treatment. And God tells us the treatment is relationship with God and relationship with neighbor. It is dwelling on Genesis 1.27, in the image of God, he made them. Now, we're all from a time and place, and we're all culturally shaped by elements of that time and place, and our algorithms are shaped by the inputs of that time and place. Because of the time and place I lived, I carry around this, this cultural uh, hyper-individualism. You know, 20, 21st century America, Alaska, the last frontier, hyper-individualism. There are some really good things that went with that. I've learned hard work. I've learned to take responsibility for my actions. I've learned to persevere. My dad used to, used to talk about self-reliance and how important this was, self-reliance. But there are parts of the Bible that I don't get. This notion of generational consequences for sin. In Malachi 1, God describes how he's going to punish a people for generations. I don't get that. Like, I can go research that and I can learn the facts of that, but I don't get that. No matter how much I research that, that, that hyper-individualism in me says, that's not fair. I don't understand. The notion of corporate sin. In Joshua, uh, they, they go and they conquer Jericho and God tells them, don't take anything, don't plunder. And one guy, Achan, he, he sees this cool robe, some threads, and some gold, and he swipes it and he buries it all under his tent. And they find out that it was Achan, and they execute his entire family. The individualist in me says, that's not fair. That's not right. Because my hyper-individualism causes me to not understand really deeply understand this idea of corporate sin. When it comes to questions of justice, uh, my notion of justice is generally limited to the punishment of bad people and sprinkled with a little bit of fairness. The Hebrew word for justice, mishpat, say that, mishpat, it's a good word which we generally in the Bible translate as justice. This occurs over 400 times in the Bible. So if you ever wanted to know what's really important to God, what should I study? Start with Mishpat. 400 times this comes up. My cultural understanding of justice is very different than God's understanding of justice. And there are some things in Mishpat that I'm likely to miss. Mishpat includes the rights of the priests to a portion of the meat given as offerings. That is their mishpat. Gets at the requirement for farmers to leave a portion of the crop in the field so that the marginalized, the powerless, the poor, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants can glean for food. 
and the individualists in me says, huh, sounds like socialism. The guy should just give him food if he wants to, but you can't compel him, you can't make him. But the heart of God says it is their mishpat, it is their right, it is justice. In short, mishpat says, I am compelled to make other people's problems my problem. Problems always seem simple when you're far away. As we, as we consider the problems in our culture around the question of race, it seems really, really simple from far away. Like, just don't do it. Don't be racist. Simple, like, just be nice to people. But the closer you get to a problem, the more complex it is. So if somebody came to me and said, Mark, I, am, I, am, I have huge problems with my ex, and we're trying to raise these kids, and it's just it's a nightmare. From a long ways away, I can be like, well, you know, here are the three things that you should do, and here's a little book you should read, and problem solved. Pat myself on the back. But as you get closer to those situations and those relationships, the problem gets far more complicated. I think we're called to get close to those problems. I think we're called to dig deeply and follow God's heart into those problems. In Micah 6.8, God says, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. The doing of justice, mishpat, doesn't happen from a long ways away. It doesn't happen on Facebook. To actively, sacrificially love my neighbor as myself, now we're approaching God's heart of justice. I grew up with a notion of discipleship that was really rooted in personal piety. Don't do the bad things and be nice. See, we've watered down, love your neighbor as yourself, do justice, uh, we've watered this down and, and just say, you know, it's, uh, it's being friendly. Just be friendly. Be nice. Personal piety is like half the picture at best. And I'm no math teacher. But I don't think that's a passing grade. It's way beyond being friendly. It begins with the recognition of the image of God in all people groups and flagging myself and having people like you flag me when I screw it up. It's antithetical to the grasping for power. It's antithetical to seeing any people group in a monolithic way. We have to build relationships. It will cost us our assumptions. It will cost us any shred of superiority we might have. It will cost us our time and our money, and it will be uncomfortable, and it will be inconvenient. But we have to understand God's justice, or our discipleship, is empty. Mishpat. When God charges the nation of Israel with violating the mishpat of the poor and the immigrant, He finds the entire nation guilty of corporate evil. This is in a monarchy where the king rules, and maybe the wealthy few have some influence. And yet they all share in the sin. Here are the questions that, that, that bother me. How much more so when I have the right to vote? when I have the right to speak out, when I have the means to make a difference? Do I get to, to just wash my hands of the unjust results of this system that goes day after day after day in which I participate? As someone who is part of a historically powerful people group in the place that I live, who has uh, enjoyed the benefits of that inheritance, how will God hold me responsible for the corporate evil which has denied justice, mishpat, to people who groups who don't enjoy the same social freedom or social power that I do? Where does my responsibility lie? These are the questions that I wrestle with. 
And when I say these are questions that I wrestle with, let me assure you, I don't know. But this is what, this is what I think about. This is what I worry about. This is where I think, man, where does the heart of God ask me to jump a little bit outside of my individualism? Tim Keller, uh, theologian and pastor, says, if we don't get what the Bible says about corporate evil, we won't only misunderstand the Bible, we won't understand our non-white brothers and sisters' pain. I had my first day of classes last week, and I got up and I taught my first class, and, and I went back to my office, and it was awesome. It was fun. And then I listened to uh, Anthony Bradley, who is an African-American professor of Christian ethics. And he said, you know, for the last 15 years, we have seen study after study after study that shows that if I don't dispel the stereotypes of a black male in the first 10 minutes of my class, my course evaluations at the semester will be very low. So he had to buy a new wardrobe. He wears a bow tie. He goes out of his way to, he says, act like Mr. Rogers on his first day of class. I didn't once think about being white on my first day of class. Not once. Which leads me back to my questions of what, what's my responsibility in that? If I'm going to follow the heart of God, if I want to make other people's problems my problems, in a country where 350 million people live, how do I do that? What does that mean? And I don't know what that means. Really, truly, honestly, I don't know. But I have to ask the question. Question of Mishpat has vast, vast implications for us. And we have to let this idea of God's justice uncover some blind spots. If we're going to understand and pursue the heart of God. If we want to be able, as followers of Jesus, to speak to issues of racial justice, we have to unhitch our allegiance to political philosophers and news outlets. You're not going to hear it on CNN or Fox News. We have to have a deep understanding of mishpat, God's justice, God's heart. And we have to be ready for God's definition of justice and love to blow up our own. The world divides. The world says, I can't fiercely protest a war and express immense gratitude for the soldier who fights on my behalf. The world says, I can't worry about the safety of my friends and family members who serve in law enforcement and worry about the safety and dignity and mishpat for my minority friends and family. The world says, I have to dismiss the concerns of one to champion the concerns of the other. But God calls us to be about justice, about mishpat, about healing, about reconciliation. The world divides, but God heals. The world oppresses and God protects. God rescues. God loves. But our sin divides. Our sin makes us fearful. We have to confront our sinful nature, our fear, our foolishness, and pursue the heart of God. Only then can we really accomplish anything as we wrestle with the problems of this world grounded in truth and grace. So as the band comes up, I know I'm an hour early. I just want to read some scripture, like Brian did last week. There's going to be a lot of scripture coming at you this next few weeks. And, uh, and I, have, I, I, can, I can send you copies of these if you, if you want to read them, if you want to explore them and dig in uh, deeper into the context. And so I, I just want us to take a minute and read and pray. I want you to examine your heart. I want you to invite God to examine your heart. And I want to really, really implore you to be someone who first reads and prays for instruction, correct, correction, recognition, and justice, and then engages and speaks. So bow your heads with me.
Galatians 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Deuteronomy 27.19, cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Exodus 12.49, the same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. Exodus 22.21, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Exodus 23.9, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Leviticus 19, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Zechariah 7, 9 and 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 13.2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. 